Lord, my God, take a look at the uh, top FCPA enforcement actions from 2016, some of the top compliance issues from 2016, and then we turn to some of the issues that might come up in 2017, or at least that we're seeing in our system. The episode comes in at uh, just over 30 minutes. This is Tom Fox. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA. This is Tom Fox, and I am back with my good friend and colleague, Michael Volkoff, and we wanted to give some thoughts on a uh, 2016 year-end wrap-up for FCPA enforcement. Mike, uh, I would note that uh, it looks like 2016 uh, already is going to be a record year, both in terms of number of enforcement actions and uh, fines and penalties in the FCPA world, and with the uh, Odebrecht-Brascom settlement in the greater uh, global fight against anti-corruption um, or corruption and bribery. But uh, what were some of the either um, highlights for you this year in the enforcement world? Well, this was a, a blockbuster year, uh, no question. And I'm not, you know, I mean, the facts back it up, but there's more to it underneath the facts here, of, you know, the, the sort of macro numbers. Um you know, from the headline standpoint, hey, look, this was a year of record-setting numbers, big cases, all of that. I don't think yet we've seen the one area that we haven't really seen fully developed yet is any sort of post-Yates memorandum indictment of individuals uh, in the cases that came out this year. If there's any case, for example, that cries out for individual prosecutions, I thought it was VimpleCon. Um, and uh, so to me, I still don't understand what's going on with, uh, you know, the individual prosecution issues. But going, going back to what I think are some of the bigger issues of the year, um, I think the compliance program requirements and the impact of DOJ's Compliance Council, Wei Chen, has been significant, and I think it's going to continue, at least she's put in place, whether she continues in the position or not, she's put in place through the FCPA pilot program remediation requirements for compliance programs and, you know, how they're going to judge compliance programs. And, boy, she has really instilled people to push issues related to compliance and then to, to, to hold companies accountable on the remediation prong. We always talk about whether or not people self-disclose or whether people uh, have adequately cooperated. Now we're seeing people failing or, you know, really struggling or having to do a lot to get the remediation credit. So to me, that's one of the biggest issues this year. And what flows from that is the return of the corporate monitor. Uh, and that's the reason that we're seeing we've had eight we had eight cases this year from DOJ eight separate cases with corporate monitors. Uh, it's got to be one of the highest numbers in years, uh, if not the highest. But it shows you that companies are not meeting the require either the severity of the violation is so significant that it requires it, but that the companies aren't in, you know embracing adequate uh, remediation. Uh, strategies. And that's because I think she has instilled in people at DOJ, as a compliance professional herself, she knows what people can and be, should be doing in these situations. So 
and I think as we as we've always seen through the years here that when compliance when DOJ starts to make a compliance push on the enforcement front it stretches across the entire industry it's like it moves the bar up all the way across so I don't know what do you think Tom with that in terms of the compliance program you know that's a really interesting point and I don't think I had considered it in that manner Previously, Mike, when I saw Corporate Monitor, I had assumed it was because the department did not have confidence that the uh, charged party, if that's a, a term I could use, uh, would implement the solution specified in the uh, Enhanced Compliance Program. And since uh, certainly before 2016, the number of corporate monitorships were being lessened, and the length of the monitorships uh, in many cases had be was lessened with some companies getting out of their monitorships early. What I had not fully appreciated was that Wei Chin would bring a level of sophistication on the implementation of the compliance solution required uh, what you've called remediation. Uh, to the fore, and that now the department is focusing more uh, intently on that remediation prong, not only either during the pendency of the investigation, which leads to potential credit for the company, but also afterwards. And if we're going to see more monitors, uh, or rather if, if the department is going to focus more on the remediation after the DPA or NPA is signed, um, a monitor uh, can certainly help facilitate that, and we might see uh, more monitors um, not really to monitor the conduct to make sure that there are no additional violations, but to monitor the conduct to, do, to make sure that the uh, agreed-upon remediation going forward is actually put in place. And that's a level of uh, maturity and sophistication for the Department of Justice that, that really only comes with uh, having someone like Wei Chin who can really advise the department, uh, who are largely, uh, well, not largely, they're all government prosecutors, uh, but who may not have had any corporate experience. So uh, that, that w really would be an, an interesting development uh, from 2016 going forward. And, and the way, I mean, the way that this is best exemplified to me is to look at the remediation uh, efforts uh, and the lack of um, credit given to Embraer, when Embraer, all, the, all that they failed to do was that they didn't discipline a senior executive who apparently knew, or at least they said uh, knew about it but didn't do anything about the bribery scheme. But the failure to, to uh, discipline that person led to um, you know, them losing uh, credit for remediation and the overall reduction from the bottom of the sentencing guidelines change. Also, look at the remediation that J.P. Morgan uh, implemented, which was incredible. I mean, not only did they fire people, but they demoted people and they took financial bonuses and benefits away from numerous people who literally were in the chain of command and should have known uh, and should have done their job to sort of stop some of the conduct that was going on around the uh, sons and daughters program. 
And to me, this is really, you know, it means when you are working with a company prior to resolution of the DPA, boy, you better have your game really up. You better, the, the council better pay more attention to this issue than I think they have in years past. And number two, you raise an even more significant if, issue, which is our monitor is going to be used to ensure that, uh, you know, post-DPA signatures, signatures, that there's going to be adequate implementation of the, the compliance program uh, representations that have been made in the Schedule C, for example. So, you know, uh, another case where this came up, which was, and I went back, I was, you know, doing my year-end sort of reviews and things like that and writing for the blog, uh, was the, LAT, the, the LATAM case, uh, the airline case where they, you know, kept the CEO on board. Uh, they didn't fire the CEO. Well, they lost, not only did they lose remediation credit, uh, but they had a monitor imposed. Because you know the CEO was uh, involved and settled with the S, uh, with the SEC and paid a f uh, civil penalty with the SEC, but they didn't fire the CEO. They kept the CEO, and because of that, I think they got a uh, a corporate monitor because they didn't tr like what you're saying, Tom. They don't. They didn't trust him that the CEO was going to really be committed to remediating this problem and avoiding uh, a reoccurrence. So they put out a monitor for three years. And it's, I mean, it wasn't that egregious a case uh, th that you and I would sit there and read it and say to ourselves, whoa, they're going to get a monitor in this case. But that simple fact of having the, the uh, violating CEO retained was enough, I think, for, uh, for them to, for DOJ to impose the monitorship. So that's, I, I think we're seeing a transformation in the type the situations where corporate monitors are used, like you raised, and the, the willingness, again, of DOJ to embrace monitorships when necessary. I, you're right. The trend was for them to back away from it because of the political controversy that occurred when they first started using corporate monitors in the Bush administration and allegations of you know, nepotism, favoritism, whatever, where monitors were connected to the DOJ, former officials. And now, um, I think DOJ, you know, there's enough time that's elapsed. Uh, they also have the memorandum and a pretty well established, it's called the Mumford Memorandum, and they probably, and they have a pretty good, uh, um, you know, practice in place for how these people get appointed. Um, so, uh, we're going to see more of this, but it, it to me it's part and parcel of that compliance program requirements are being uh, the you know the expectation from DOJ is higher and higher now. Um, DOJ is getting much more seasoned in their understanding of compliance and how compliance programs should work. They're very aware of what new technologies and products and services are out there that companies can buy. Um, and use. And I think uh, both DOJ and the SEC are stressing more and more uh, the importance of internal controls as a critical, even more critical element in an effective ethics and compliance program. So they're more willing to dig into the details of deficiencies in those. And 
I think the inevitable result of that will be to push the financial people in a company into the same room with uh, the compliance people to make sure that they're coordinating and talking to each other to at least get input from each other uh, on these types of issues, which I think is a good thing. But I've seen too many silos between compliance and financial people uh, within companies. And it really, to me, reflects uh, a maturity of the department's understanding of what an effective compliance program is, but also uh, pushing out to not only the companies involved, but as you note, it, it raises the bar for everyone. Uh, the DOJ knows what a uh, best practices program is. They know what a uh, best practices, effective, and even cutting-edge technology around compliance is because companies are coming in and demonstrating compliance or remediation with these cutting-edge technologies. So the DOJ, in many ways, it's it's I wouldn't say it's the laboratory, but it's the place where many of the uh, cutting-edge technologies are, are demonstrated uh, and then communicated out to the greater compliance community because companies are using those with some success uh, in front of the regulators. So it, it, I think, is pushing the bar higher and moving the ball of compliance forward. And I really uh, also uh, like your point about the SEC enforcement push around internal controls. We started seeing that really, I thought, in the second half of 2015. And we've had a multi multitude or a plethora of internal control cases this year, which uh, emphasizes the SEC belief that uh, internal controls and accurate financial reporting, uh, which are their uh, uh, accurate financial reporting is their core mission, um, that you achieve that through internal controls. And companies need to understand that around um, the uh, FCPA enforcement. And of course, you know, we saw that with the United Airlines case, um, which we both uh, talked about a little bit on another podcast, where it was domestic corruption. So uh, internal controls is going to become even more important going forward. So it, it's really interesting that the Department of Justice now in many ways, I think, or in the SEC as well, but the regulators are in many ways leading the discussion of what is a uh, cutting edge to a best practices, practices just to a regular must-have. And uh, Wei Chen, I think, uh, can be credited with a lot of uh, leading that discussion. No, no question. And, and another example, and I think besides internal controls, a more specific, another specific example to me is what the department expects and we're going to see, I think, as a best practice or a baseline even with regard to due diligence and third-party risk management. Because DOJ is very much aware of, you know, these vendor solutions that are out there. And I'm not you know, I'm not pu I'm not pushing any of them, but uh, you know there are vendors out there who are offering solutions in this area, and the fact is that DOJ knows that if you you spend eighty to a hundred thousand dollars, let's say you're a mid-sized company, uh, to implement one of these programs, that it's going to be effective, it's going to be better, it's going to create uh, an auditable trail with regard to how you um, onboard your third parties and then how you monitor them and audit them and things like that. So I believe this is, this is, for example, another 
area where the bar is being raised. And if you are still operating a paper due diligence program in a year or so, uh, you know, that's going to be by definition uh, unacceptable. Um, and so they, and, and in some respects, they're right to push people uh, on this area because there are solutions out there that can make your life easier and you can devote more resources from due diligence to other types of um, uh, aspects of your training program, you know, like your training program or something like that. So, I, you know, and then, and you and I talked about the OXIF case, you know, that showed exactly that DOJ was willing to not only look at the fact of due diligence, but now they want to know what's the quality of your due diligence. How do you review it internally? What data do you look at? How did you assess your data? What did you have, what did you do to document your review process? And ultimately, they want a full record as to if you decide to go forward with somebody, uh, how you resolved every red flag and what you based your decision on. And believe me, if it blows up and turns into a bad situation, uh, you better have all of those red flags resolved and everything documented because in OXIF, they showed that they were willing to, you know, basically describe the internal debate about hiring a joint venture partner uh, in that case. So, um, you know, I mean, it, compare where we were five years ago. These were not discussions we were having. These issues, internal controls, due diligence to such an extent in detail, we were not talking about. We were talking about putting the basic you know, elements and building blocks of a compliance program down. And I, I hate to throw out one other term that I think Wei Chen deserves credit for, but was the operationalization of, uh, you know, compliance program. Uh, she, I think, described very accurately in some of her public pronouncements what we know, Tom, in terms of the reality within a company. You can have a compliance program on paper, but if you don't have all the people working together and communicating uh, to each other, your program is not operationalized. In other words, HR isn't playing a role uh, in, in it. Your finance people aren't playing a role in it. Your security people aren't playing a role in it. Um, and for, legal and auditing aren't. You know, you have to make sure you operationalize uh, the, the program, otherwise it's a paper program. And DOJ has seen so many of those, they're, they're sick of seeing those. And I think what she's saying is, you know, you better come in with at least these types of issues addressed in some meaningful way uh, and to show us how you've operationalized the program uh, as well. So this is another sort of, uh, you know, trend that I see in terms of the language that's being used now around all of all of this uh, this stuff uh, you know the compliance area not just in um, um, you know not just in uh, um, FCPA but it bleeds into other areas as well so Mike one of the other trends that I think we both felt was pretty significant uh, going forward was uh, international cooperation and before 2016 when I had thought or talked about international cooperation, I thought or talked about it in terms of the investigation. And certainly the DOJ and SEC have been uh, quick to credit other investigative uh, agencies, uh, prosecutorial uh, 
groups and regulators in other countries. But this year, we really saw a coordination in uh, global enforcement. Uh, obviously, the Odebrecht case, fresh on our minds, is is a great example. But there were other examples uh, throughout the year, uh, really leading to Odebrecht. So, how did you how do you see this uh, coordination of international anti-corruption enforcement as something new and different from what we had seen before in terms of the investigations? Well, I think, um, and I guess my looking at it from a company standpoint. Uh, and I'm, I'm operating in 84 countries around the world. The, my biggest fear is, you know, a small incident that occurs in Africa will suddenly be communicated and shared, the information shared with the DOJ prosecutors because they all know each other and they have each other's phone numbers. And all of a sudden, the risk of detection uh, resulting in you know, the FCPA unit launching an investigation against me has increased exponentially. And that's a reflection of the, you know, grounds uh, breaking work that DOJ and other international organizations, the, you know, the UN, the OECD have put together and the World Bank uh, to, to that matter, in terms of bringing uh, people together uh, bringing prosecutors together. And I think you mentioned to me, Tom, about how uh, DOJ and the SEC have brought foreign prosecutors uh, together with the DOJ to talk about how you prosecute these cases. And just by being together, they open up communications line, communication lines. Here's my number. If you need anything in this country, let us know, or vice versa. You know, you need anything in the U.S., let us know. Um, and I think once you break it down into uh, people connecting with each other, all of a sudden now there's enforcement activities where it's all coordinated. You have one proceeding and you may then divvy up the proceeds amongst the various participating countries so that my company may not be subject to 84 different prosecutions in separate countries, but now we'll have one prosecution and they'll divide it up among the 84 countries, uh, the settlement. And that's what, I mean, those are the extreme examples, but I think that's the model where we're heading towards. And, uh, and that means that once you break down barriers among the various countries, that increases my risk of detection. And, uh, Increase, you know, exponentially is what I say. And you've got to be, you know, even more careful because an allegation in one country can immediately be turned over to the Justice Department. And we don't know what other information they may have, uh, you know, to corroborate that or, or to build on that. Uh, so there's, there are, you know, bringing everybody together in this international effort means, um, means, uh, you know, greater coordination in that sense means greater risk for the companies. I will say this also, just on a more macro level, you know, there have been people writing in general about how the new administration is going to dismantle uh, FCPA enforcement and the Chamber of Commerce will finally get what it wants in terms of the FCPA. That is completely contradicted in my view by the extent to which you have these international anti-corruption enforcement networks. In other words, the more that this becomes an international effort, 
the less likelihood there is that the United States would ever attempt to dismantle this. Um, obviously, it's lucrative, but secondly, it's so interdependent with other countries and other efforts that nobody would want to see the U.S. sort of push, pull back on this. Uh, it's not worth the headaches that will come. And, uh, you know, frankly, Congress isn't going to want to try to, you know, promote a message of, uh, by the way, let's make it easier for companies to engage in foreign bribery. It just is not a good talking point or a marketing presentation. But the, inter the internationalization of this makes it harder for the U.S. to just act on its own in terms of pulling back from uh, playing the unique role that they do in FCPA enforcement. That's a more macro uh, issue, though. And in flipping it back from the regulator to the company perspective, one of the things that uh, Kara Brockmeyer emphasized in her talk was that to uh, obtain credit from the U.S. government for fines and penalties you might pay to another country, such as uh, Credit Odebrecht received um, and Embraer received, you have to uh, disclose uh, or, or get to the U.S. government uh, and meet the other requirements under the pilot program. Uh, you may not be, uh, you may not um, self-disclose initially to the United States, but you have to self-disclose to those other countries. So uh, that makes the issue of not just the investigation component that you talked about, Mike, but also multiple disclosures to multiple uh, regulatory agencies in multiple jurisdictions becomes a trickier question uh, that has to be answered at the board level because if you disclose to one or one finds out and you don't disclose to the others, you may lose the ability to receive some sort of credit across the globe, which is what you're going to want at the end of the day uh, if you have a problem. So it makes the investigation, uh, first the detection of any problem, then the investigation of any problem, then the decision of whether or not to self-disclose, and then the actual self-disclosure, who do you self-disclose, how do you self-disclose, what do you self-disclose, and when do you self-disclose, all, I think, uh, if not more difficult, certainly uh, more intricate questions that companies need to have a protocol in place that allows them to have uh, figured out what they're going to do uh, before they're in an emergency and panic situation. That is a, a great point, Tom. And I always think that you can look to the antitrust division uh, and their experience with the leniency program uh, as somewhat of a, a model for what is going to happen down the road. Um, because that's exactly what companies do in, in global antitrust cartel cases. They figure out who to disclose to first, and then they also have to take it, figure out which country do I go to to disclose there, or do I go to the EU, and I, will I be number one or number two or number three there? What's going to happen? Um, and what countries do we have potential liability? So you may have uh, 10 companies that you will disclose to, 10 countries that you may disclose to, and the order in which or the, the, the timeliness of your reporting is, uh, becomes important. They're just not, you don't just run into each country and tell them something right off the bat. 
um, on the first day. So there's a, there are a lot more issues you have to resolve. So that to me is, you know, antitrust is coordinated antitrust enforcement among global uh, enforcement agencies has definitely matured beyond where the FCPA is. And, uh, and I think that's a model for what's going to happen down the road um, in terms of that. So you raise, you raise a really good point about that. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're in trouble, my suggestion is you call Mike Volkoff. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I hope, I hope. <laughs> well, Mike, with that, uh, maybe we could, I was wondering if we could turn to um, the veiled uh, future and uh, what you might see uh, for 2017 uh, going forward. If two or three points that uh, you think are uh, that the compliance practitioner uh, needs to consider. Well, I think uh, number one is please don't expect any significant changes uh, with the, the new administration. I just don't think it's going to happen, um, and for a variety of reasons, which I've already talked about. Um, I think we're going to uh, see sort of more, um, what I would call more compliance program expectations um, and where we're going to see them. And I think uh, perhaps the most significant issue, if you're a compliance professional, is you better be focusing on auditing and monitoring your program and your third parties. Um, those are perhaps the most significant issue to me because uh, that's where the expectations are going to rise. It's one thing to have your auditing program, you know, your auditing provisions with your third parties, um, and uh, it's another thing to exercise them. And I think they're going to want to see uh, more of that. That's just an example of how compliance programs, uh, they're going to be, um, you know, higher expectations along with the issue that we've discussed of internal controls and third-party risk management. I mean, those should be your top three issues in, in my view, in terms of how you're going to do this. Now, I do think that the new administration, my prediction is we will see some tinkering with the pilot program uh, to perhaps give greater than a 50% reduction from the bottom of the guideline range when you meet the requirements for voluntary disclosure, cooperation, and remediation. I think we're going to see uh, the new administration adopt probably uh, greater certainty of a declination um, when you meet those three requirements. That's my prediction. Um, and they, they want to encourage companies to self-report, clean it up, remediate, and if you do that, you're going to get a, a pass. But what will be required among, you know, to make that sellable in, you know, the political land is uh, DOJ has got to bring more. And we may see uh, finally this year a little bit more of a push on individuals on the FCPA. Uh, we can't just have, uh, you know, these sort of corporate settlements. Company pays a lot of money egregious behavior by various individuals and no prosecution. Keep in mind in the antitrust division context, um, and, and it took them years to get to this. I mean, they used to have a one-to-one -one ratio of individuals uh, to companies in terms of prosecutions. And then it got to two-to-one, 
as the program matured and as the program has even matured even more in the last, I would say, 10 years, they've gotten it to three individuals prosecuted for every company. And I think it'll eventually get there with the FCPA, uh, but you know, we've got to first at least get to a one-to-one ratio, and they're not even uh, close to that right now in terms of that. So that's, but I do see that those sort of, those will be my big picks for the year. Uh, obviously, on the, on the compliant, on the individual case fronts, I think uh, we're going to see a Walmart uh, settlement this year. Uh, Microsoft, uh, Telesenario, which they've already been talking about. Uh, you know, billion dollar type case, uh, and some other, uh, cases that should get resolved soon on. But I, I think Walmart, uh, Telesonaria seems the closest to being announced. And I bet you we'll see Walmart by the middle of the year. Uh, that's my prediction at least. So we'll see. Uh, 2016 has been uh, really a, a year for, uh, the record books and where 2017 goes, if it has, uh, a quarter to a half to three quarters of what we saw in uh, 2016. It's it's going to be uh, very interesting for the uh, compliance practitioner going forward. Absolutely. Totally agree with you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this inaugural episode in 2017 of the FCPA. I'm developing a mailback episode, so if you'd like any questions or answers, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast. We, uh, uh, that would help our ranking on iTunes and uh, help it to down. So I would greatly appreciate it. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.